Matthew chapter 5. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the first sermon that we have recorded in the book of Matthew of Jesus. In the past few chapters, he was introduced to the world through the baptism of John. He went out to the wilderness to be tempted, and then he began to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he went about healing and preaching that message. So what was the message? So for the next few chapters, it gives us the details about what it means to repent and what it means for the kingdom to be here. This is Jesus' entire message. He goes up on a mountain to preach it, so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at the beginning, which serves as sort of a summary of the whole sermon. And then the rest of the five, chapters 5, 6, and 7 uh, go into detail. This may be the one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. It's a pretty big statement, right? But it may just be one of the most important. It tells us what, it, what Christians look like, what the kingdom looks like. What it is Jesus came here to make out of us and what kind of standards he has for his own kingdom. And it's summarized in a way that really couldn't be done any better. Draws from Old Testament Hebrew wisdom, literature, poetry, combined with the Holy Spirit inspiration and the Son of God himself and recorded for us by the uh, apostles into a passage that is famous around the world. Even by non-Christians. Gandhi himself said he drew his inspiration from this passage. So what is the passage about? Let's read it. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is summarizing Jesus' entire message. It's dense. Really, it should be a eight-part sermon. <laughs> One sermon per verse. Uh, but it's already going to take six months to get through the Sermon on the Mount, going paragraph by paragraph. So we're going to do our best here and then expand it through the rest of the, uh, of the series. But it's telling us the kind of life that we should have. 
So when Jesus comes, he, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. So if it's good news, it means we should want it, right? You don't want bad news, we want good news. So he says, blessed. Now, when we hear that word blessed, we don't necessarily think of the same thing that they were talking about. Sometimes we think blessed means you get stuff, right? Um, you get a check in the mail, hashtag blessed, right? Like you've been blessed by God. That's not what this verse means, and it's not really what it means in the Bible. The word blessed here means approved or happy or something people want. If you have it, people are envious of you. So it's this idea of a status that is to be desired. So it's telling you the kind of thing that you should want, and if you have it, everybody else should want. So it's the kind of life that God approves of. It's the kind of person that God approves of. So when it says blessed, it's that which is to be desired if you don't have it. And if you do have it, you're set. So what kind of life is this? Now, there's a lot of variation here, which is common among in Hebrew poetry to sort of use variety to explain something. But notice in verse 3 it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then look at verse 10, the last part of what we call uh, the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a way to say everything in between those two verses is talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's just using different ways to talk about it. So it starts with, if you do this, you get the kingdom of heaven, and it ends with, you get the kingdom of heaven. And everything in the middle is just an explanation of those things. So when it says, to be comforted, to inherit the earth, to, to be filled, to be pure, in, uh, to see God, those are all ways of saying the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. So it's a really helpful way for us to say, what is the kingdom of heaven? Right. Well, it's this. Yes. Now, these are called the Beatitudes, which mean nothing to you unless you know Latin. Uh, and in Latin, the word beatus means blessed. So it's just a complicated way of saying blessed. Uh, but we call them the Beatitudes, and everyone else calls them that, uh, and so that's their title. If you have a study Bible, it probably says that, Beatitudes. It's just a Latin way of saying blessed. And we're going to see three things here. And so all, all three things are about the rule of Christ. So kingdom... We've talked about this before. Kingdom does not mean place where the king is or a boundary of a kingdom. It means the rule of a king. So the kingdom of heaven is the rule of heaven. So when it says kingdom, it doesn't mean you go into the kingdom by crossing a border. It means the king rules over you. Right. So what is the, who is the king? Well, that's the whole book of Matthew. Christ. Christ is the king. In fact, if you look it up on a search engine, the book of Matthew says kingdom way more than any other book in the entire Bible. Even the book of Kings only mentions it 17 times. The book of Matthew mentions it 55 times. So it's talking about who is the king and what does his rule look like. And so we're going to see in this passage the rule of Christ in Christians, the rule of Christ in conflict, and the rule of Christ completed. This is a summary of everything. This is not a part of the kingdom or a part of Christianity. This is it. 
So if it's not here, it's not part of Christianity. And if it is here, it's a necessary part. This is important because we're going to read stuff here that does not fit into our lives. does not fit into our way of thinking. And we have to be prepared to say that maybe the past 10, 20, 30, 40, or 100 years have been teaching us incorrectly. That maybe the entire tradition that we're a part of has been slightly wrong. That's hard, because the most normal thing in your life is your life. Nothing is more normal than your life. And for someone to say to you, your life is wrong, is the hardest thing to hear. You've spent every day of your life being accustomed to your life and to your own way of thinking. And what the Bible is doing, what Jesus is doing, is saying, put all that on hold. Let me tell you about a new way of life where Christ rules, not culture or experience or tradition or our own common sense. So we see the rule of Christ in Christians. This is describing a kind of person, the character of a person who is a follower of Christ. Now, a helpful way to look at this passage, we're going to divide it into two parts, those things that are internal and those things that are external, or what it looks like inside of your heart to be a follower of Christ and how that manifests itself to the world. So we're going to look at the first part, which is what it looks like inside, the kind of person that is to be envied, the kind of person that everyone should want to be. We see four things. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when someone says, I wish I was like them, the first thing that follows is not they're poor. Right? Money is the answer, isn't it? Wealth is the answer. Status is the answer. This is saying to enter the kingdom, the first description of you should be poor. Poor in spirit. Spiritually bankrupt and you know it. To be a part of the kingdom is to say, I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be in this life. I don't deserve to be blessed. If you think you have anything to offer to Jesus or to the kingdom life, you can't be in the kingdom. Until you start with saying, I am bankrupt. There's nowhere nowhere else to go. So a lot of us say, we can't do it without God. We can't do it without Jesus. We have so many debts, and we only have a little bit of money in the bank. So Jesus, here's the money I have. Pay off the rest. That is not what this is saying. This is saying you have no money in the bank, and you have a lot of debt. And so you come before God, and you say, I have nothing to offer you. I'm poor. I'm bankrupt. So God, you have to do everything. That is the gospel. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the repent is here, the poor part. Repent of everything. Give up everything and realize you had nothing to begin with. Can you do that? Everything you've accumulated in your life, say, this has no value to God. That I need him to give me what I need. That I am poor. If you can say that, that I have nothing, you are to be envied. You are happy. You are blessed. The world will never teach you that. Your own heart will not teach you that. Only Christ can teach you that. To be spiritually bankrupt and know it. 
And then it says, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who are sad. What? Do you know that sin is the cause of all the problems in the world? And when you say that you're bankrupt, you realize two things. You've contributed and you can't stop it. You're a sinner. And when you are in the kingdom and you see the perfection of God, you mourn over your own sin. You lament and you say, I am sorry that I'm a sinner. That grieves me. But notice there are no qualifications on the mourning. What else do you lament over? All sin everywhere. You grieve over sin everywhere. And this is where we fail so often. We'll grieve over sin in our life when our relationships suffer because of selfishness or when our work suffers because of greed. But will you lament when other people's lives suffer? Can you grieve over other people's suffering? You see, this says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Over every sin they know about. Whether it's their own sin or the sin of the government or the sin of their work or the sin of the person that lives next to them, or the sin of the person on the TV. They mourn over the brokenness of the world. We are trained to isolate ourselves from other people's suffering. Our world says, happy is the person who is not affected by other people's suffering. People who can shelter themselves from suffering are to be envied. But the Bible says the opposite. Happy are the people who can weep over suffering, who can be continually grieved that sin is in this world, both personal sin and corporate sin. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's the way of the kingdom. To see sin for what it is and have it cause you to react. To be the kind of person who is sorry about sin. All sin everywhere. Even if it doesn't affect you directly, or when it does affect you directly. You have to ask yourself, what kind of person are you? Do you lament over your own sin, constantly inward looking, but you don't really care about other people? Or are you constantly looking at other people and never at yourself? Either way, blessed are those who mourn. They lament sins, personal and corporate. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It doesn't say they want righteousness. It doesn't say they have righteousness. Remember, you're poor. You don't have righteousness, but you want it. You hunger and thirst for it. That's the kind of language that, that says something about desperation. Yeah. Go a couple hours or days without food, and this is what it means. Uh-huh. You can't live without it. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does righteousness mean? We think of it as sort of doing good things, don't we? Or self-righteous. We don't really use the word other, otherwise, do we? The only time we really use the word is when we're talking about self-righteousness. But righteousness simply means doing things God's way. When God says something, we do it that way. So righteousness includes good deeds. It includes justice. Because the Bible talks a lot about how to treat your neighbor. So do you hunger and thirst for justice? Well, where? 
doesn't give you a where, does it? Wherever you see it or see the lack of it. Do you hunger and thirst for God's way of doing things? This is why we preach from the Bible. Because we should be looking for God's way of doing things, which can only be found in Scripture. But you know, Scripture talks about stuff. And so it's this life of desiring God's way. So often we just think of it as desiring to be a good person. Blessed is the good person. Happy is the person who does the right thing. It's much more than that. It's happy is the person who constantly and perpetually seeks right and good and justice in all areas of their life. Whether it be their personal life, their work, when they go to vote, when they post on Facebook, when they speak to their coworkers. Without this, you don't have the kingdom. Well, you don't have the kingdom of heaven. Augustine, who wrote 1,700 years ago, said, Justice removed, which you could all say righteousness removed, then what are kingdoms but great band of robbers? And what are bands of robbers themselves but little kingdoms? If you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, you can't be a part of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is full of righteousness and justice. It's full of it. It's everywhere in this kingdom. We often go for kingdoms that are partially filled with righteousness. No one's perfect, right? Let's talk about the good, not the bad. We compromise and weigh the good and the bad. But God's kingdom is full of justice, and so we hunger and thirst for it. Look at the next one, the last sort of the internal. Blessed are the pure in heart. God gets right down to the heart of it. He said, it's not for the people who do right. It's not for the people who seem right. It's not for the people who even want right. It's for the people who are right in their hearts. Pure in heart has two meanings. It means you're focused and you're clean. When you look at a kingdom citizen, their outside and their insides are equally important. And if your inside is different, if you, which only you can really know, if you're not seeking God in your heart, you're not seeking God. If your heart is not pure, you're not pure. The pure in heart shall see God. Not the pure in behavior, pure in action, the pure in speech, none of the, the pure in heart. We think of the Pharisees who were pure on the outside, whitewashed sepulchers, tombs that were pure, White, full of dead men's bones. But let me tell you, there are plenty of churches full of the same kind of people. There are plenty of pastors preaching from pulpits this morning who look exactly the same, but inside are not pure. God wants you to be pure, not look pure. Those who are pure of heart are part of this kingdom, and they are. Isn't that the blessed life? Isn't that the envious life when you're actually pure? That you're not a hypocrite? That you're not trying? But internally, you're the kind of person that can see God? These are high standards, aren't they? This may give you the impression that you're not in the kingdom. Like, am I mourning over sin? Am I pure in heart? Do I actually hunger and thirst for righteousness? Don't soften the words. This is the kingdom. 
And these are the kind of people in the kingdom. And if you say to yourself, that doesn't sound like me, like Jesus said, you are close to the kingdom. Because the first step of getting into the kingdom is saying, I can't get in the kingdom. I can't do it. So where do we get these things from? Where's the source of the poor in spirit, the hunger, the pureness? Well, who was telling us this story? It was Jesus talking. The one preacher that ever lived who actually practiced what he preached. The only preacher who ever got behind a pulpit who did what he said. When he said be pure, he was pure. When he said hunger for righteousness, he did hunger. He knew that without God, he was separate. There was nothing outside of God. So when he says, do these things, he didn't mean for you to look at the things. He meant for you to look at him. The source of these things is not us. The source is Christ, the one who is preaching this. Your Bible probably has this written in red, doesn't it? To help you, though all the Bible is God's word, to help you see Jesus. As he preaches, we look to him in desperation. How do we get these things? Because Jesus came first. He lived them. He practiced them. And he practiced them on behalf of us. He who was in heaven was born in a manger. Went from royalty to the dirt. Poor. He stood over the city of Jerusalem and wept for their sins. The only person who could only weep for other people's sins. Never his own, because he had none. He cried out. He said, I only come to do the will of the Father. On the cross, he said, I'm spiritually bankrupt. Why? So that we could be filled. His suffering, his poorness, his pureness combined on the cross gives us the ability to be those things. Until you see Jesus doing it naturally and for us, you'll never see the kingdom. You can't be this person on your own. You do not lack the resources. You do not lack the ability. You need Jesus to give them to you, which is exactly what he came to do. These are made available to us by Christ, who through the Holy Spirit creates them in you. You will never be pure of heart on your own. But you can be pure of heart through the work of Jesus applied by the Spirit. This is why we believe in the Trinity. God the Father decreed that this is the kingdom. Jesus came down to provide the kingdom, and the Spirit applies it to us. Without God, we are outside of the kingdom. But with God, we now can be these things. We can be poor of spirit. We can mourn over sin. We can hunger and thirst for righteousness. We can be pure of heart because of what Christ did and what the Holy Spirit is creating in us. This is a miracle. This is crazy to expect anyone to do this. The only way it happens is through an actual supernatural miracle. Jesus was raising dead people and healing broken limbs. Forget about all that. Give me someone who's actually who they say they are. That's a miracle. It's easier to heal someone of leprosy than to find someone who actually cares about everyone they meet. 
Jesus says, you think this is a big deal because I cured the polio or the palsy. Find someone who actually wants God. Truly in their heart. That's a miracle greater than any other miracle we see Jesus doing. And that's what's offered to us. That's what it means to be happy. But there's more to it. The other half. When that kind of person, the kingdom citizen, interacts with other people. So we see the rule of Christ in Christians inside of us. But then we see the rule rule of Christ in conflict. Because here's the thing. Not everybody is in the kingdom. Or I should say, not everyone is in the kingdom of heaven. There's another kingdom. There are two kingdoms here. We can see it in the conflict, the persecution, the opposition. There are two kingdoms. Augustine wrote about this in 1,500 years ago, which sometimes you've got to go back 1,500 years to get out of the bubble. Sometimes our life and our culture has bogged us so so far down that we've got to get out of it. So here's what he said. The earthly city glorifies in itself. The heavenly city glorifies in the Lord. The biggest takeaway is that there are two cities at work. Now, what's difficult, what we see in this passage, is they live side by side. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth are right next to each other. Wouldn't it be just better if there was just one kingdom? And it's just you trying to live right without people trying to stop you from living right? Wouldn't that be nice? That's not the way it is. The rule of Christ is being opposed by the rule of Satan. And those who follow Christ will be stopped or attempted to be stopped by those following Satan. The kingdoms are in competition. And what does that look like? What does it look like to live in a world where everyone's not following Jesus? So here's what the Bible says. There are four things, the kind of person that follows Christ in this world. Number one, verse three, or, um, sorry, got off of my notes. Verse five, blessed are the meek. No one uses the word meek, do they? Sounds too much like weak, which is how it's viewed. This may be one of the most difficult for us in our world, in our country. Meek means you have power, but you don't use it. You have some power, and you restrain that power. Blessed are those who do not do what they could do. Some of you say, I don't have power. Everyone has power. You at least have the power of your words. He's saying... Stop using them to gain. The meek are those who restrain their power. They avoid exerting will over others. Well, how do you get anything done? Sometimes the answer is you don't. That's why he said they shall inherit the earth, not they shall have the earth right now. The meek lose a lot. They do not win because they don't exert themselves. They don't force themselves. They don't push. They don't fight. They restrain. Augustine said this. This is the very rest and life of the saints. The meek are those who yield to acts of evil, do not resist evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Let those then who are not meek quarrel and fight for earthly and temporal gains. But blessed are the meek, for they shall by inheritance possess the earth from which they cannot be driven out. Did you hear that? The meek are those who yield to acts of evil. You don't go along with them. You overcome them with good. This is the Christian tradition. This is what Christ is teaching us. You don't fight. You don't push against. You do good. You don't exert your power. You turn the other cheek. So often we're looking for an example of when turning the other cheek is not actually turning the other cheek. We're looking for the loophole. Yeah, but. No, it says that we are to be meek. We are to avoid the strong man. We are to avoid the leader who exerts his will over others. This is a huge problem in America because we're seeking political leaders to do exactly that. The current political leader, which will change, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The current political leader is being supported because he is a strong man. He may be a bully, but as one pastor told me, at least he's our bully. That's not the kingdom. That is not the way of Christ. To support those who push power on others is not the kingdom. At least not the kingdom of heaven. It's certainly the kingdom of earth. This will mean to be meek means you will be run over. You will be pressed down. You will be hurt. You will lose. But you'll be in the kingdom. We've been discipled by warriors, by winners. We've been trained to be Christians by those who win. But that's not what Christ is saying. He says we are to be discipled by Christ who lost, who came to serve, not to step on. That's hard. That's a hard saying. Who can hear it? But that is the kingdom. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. What is mercy? It's giving people what they need, not what they deserve. Christians give people what they need, not what they deserve. Don't we want to give people what they deserve? Don't we want to make sure that they get what's right and fair? All these people getting what they didn't work for? All these people getting free lunches? They didn't work like I did? They don't deserve that? That's the way of the world. That's the kingdom of earth. The kingdom of heaven is merciful. We give people what they need. A lot of times what we do is we just turn our eyes away from it so we don't see it. This is a very unique situation for us in America. One guy said it this way. You must continually highlight God's desire for justice in spaces designed to remove people from experiencing injustice. The suburbs are wonderful. Schools are good. The parks are good. The areas are safe. Thus, they can have a numbing effect. When suburbanites see other people suffering injustice, they can let their inexperience with injustice 
negate the injustice experienced. Merciful means that you seek out people who need help. How do we know that? Because Jesus is the one telling us. He didn't live in heaven and wait for people to come to him for help. He sought out people who needed something, didn't deserve it, but needed it. Those who live in the kingdom constantly seek out how they can help people in need. And they don't put qualifications on it. The deserving poor. No, the kingdom of hell. Let's put it that way. The kingdom of heaven is merciful. The kingdom of Satan looks for the deserving. Aren't you glad God didn't look for you to be deserving? That he didn't come and look for those who deserved help? He looked for those who needed help and could never deserve it. And those of us who follow Christ are constantly looking for ways to help people in need, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. Sacrificing for others. Giving up what we have to give to others. Merciful. Verse 9, peacemakers. You see, to be in the kingdom means to do something. Do you love Christ? He is the Prince of Peace. He came to make peace. God, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, has called us to the ministry of reconciliation. As it were, God, we're speaking through us. When you are in a group, does that group get along better or worse because you're there? Is there more harmony in your circles than the circles you're not in? Do you create reconciliation among the people you interact with? Are you making peace or do you just like peace? We all love harmony. We all want to get along. But this as the peacemakers. They don't just love peace. They create it. If you're not working to reconcile people to God and to each other, you're not following Christ. He spent his whole life on this earth getting people to be with God and with each other. Have you read the disciples' stories? One was a Republican. The other one was a Democrat. The third one was a fringe libertarian. The fourth one thought politics were bad. He was an anarchist. The fifth one just wanted to hang out with everybody. This other guy was so young, he was just following the crowd. What did Jesus do? He figured out a way to get them to get along with each other. Are you doing that? Is this church a place where people learn to be at peace with one another? If not, then we are not reflecting the kingdom of heaven. And yes, it's hard work. You know how you make peace? You've got to give up things. You don't get what you want when you make peace. You say, I want people to be reconciled with God and with each other more than I want some other things. Because there's a reason the division was there to begin with. Someone did something wrong. And there'll be no peace until that wrong is dealt with. And you have to say, I'm more concerned with people being reconciled than with getting what people deserve or what, the, what I want. That's hard work, and if you don't work at it, it won't happen. But this is the kind of life we're called to live. And then finally, persecution. The response of the world to the kingdom. 
you will be persecuted if you follow Christ. Now, if you're like me, that causes you to think, I don't feel like I'm being persecuted. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. If you're not being persecuted, it's because you're not standing against evil. Now, persecution looks different. Notice he says here, when they revile and persecute you, when they say all kinds of evil things. Sometimes you'd rather get thrown in jail than for people to talk about you the way they do. But if no one's talking about you and no one's doing anything, it's probably because you're avoiding all conflict. You're avoiding all problems. You're avoiding all peacemaking. You're not seeking justice. Or you may not realize that the church may be the one persecuting you. When I say church, I mean the organization on earth. I mean people who are members of a church but are not in the kingdom. Who don't want you to cause problems. Who wants you to rail against the sins they are against, but be quiet about the rest of them. Sometimes being persecuted is other Christians attacking you for not being Christian enough. That's hard, isn't it? When your enemies are against you, okay, but when your allies are against you, where, where do you go? That is persecution. That is suffering. That is what we are called to do. Happy and blessed is the person who is attacked. You know what is not in This is a comprehensive list of what we should be. It's kind of weak, isn't it? Who's getting set straight in this? Who's being overthrown? No one. There's nothing left of this. This is the end. The end is persecution. The end is losing. If any man wants to gain his life, he must first lose it. Avoid any kind of Christianity that offers you a chance to win in this world. Avoid Christian leaders who can give you power or prestige. Avoid speech that gets over on other people. See, a lot of us have this problem where when we're attacked, we respond. We push back. We get corrected, we want to correct back. We get attacked, we want to immediately attack back. That's not in here. That's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to be persecuted. And we are to rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. This is so anti-human nature that unless you believe God said it, it's not going to work. And it won't appear to ever work. That's why he says, when you get to heaven, it'll work. Martin Luther King said it this way. When dealing with persecution, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much an obligation as cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities and beat us, and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall...
and our victory will be a double victory. Love is the most durable power in the world. You see what King did there? He took the whole Beatitudes, the suffering, the peacemaking, the endurance, and he said, this is what it looks like. Because we are like Christ, we will suffer like Christ. But in doing so, we shall show the power of Christ. When you exert your power, Christ gets set aside. When you follow the strong person, Christ doesn't need to be there. But when you give up and let Christ's love work through you and endure suffering, it's so strange and so miraculous that God has to get the glory. But you see the takeaway? You have to suffer. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Is that what you see as happiness? Does this lay out your plan for happiness? Or is this like, wow, that's a great goal. Maybe it'll happen one day. Or are you saying, this is the life I want. This is the life that I want. I can't imagine a better life than this. Because Jesus is saying, this is the best life you can have. It's so radical that you just have to believe it. You can't make sense of it. You just have to believe it. But this is the kind of life that we should all want to have, that we should all strive for. This is the kind of life that Jesus had. And the only way we're going to be able to live in this kind of life is to look at what Jesus did and will do. You see, the rule of Christ is not yet completed. When have the meek inherited the earth? Never. So that must mean that sometime in the future this will be fulfilled. When will we be fully comforted? Not now. When will we see God? Have you ever asked, where is God? It's because the rule of Christ is not completed. It's already here, but it's not yet here. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it is coming. There's this paradox here where Christ is ruling in our hearts, but he's not ruling in the world. But one day he will come back, and he will rule in our hearts and in the world. That all things will be set right. That all people will pursue justice. That all people will be pure in heart. That all people won't need to be peacemakers because we'll be at peace. Christ will come back one day and there'll be no competing kingdoms. There'll be no injustice. There'll be nothing to mourn over. He'll wipe away every tear, which means he'll take away the things that you cry about. That's what the second coming of Christ is. There'll be no lack of anything. You'll inherit the entire earth. You'll never want for another dollar, another meal, another car, another doctor's bill. You'll inherit the entire earth. There'll be no separation from God. There'll be no spiritual lack. There'll be no wondering where God is because you will see him face to face. We are looking for the second coming of the king to reward us for living as his citizens now. But if you can't see him coming in the future, you can't live for him now because the reward is invisible. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for you will be rewarded in heaven. The kingdom of heaven, which means you will always in this life be looking forward to something you don't have yet. How real is the hope of Christ? Is he the king and is he coming back? If he's not, then just live your best life now. But if he's coming back to set everything right, then we can look up past our experiences and with the eyes of faith, See a full kingdom that encompasses everything, body, mind, soul, communities, where Christ is ruling, keeping the peace, 
building up his people, loving us so that we can love him. And not just us, but everyone around us. That's the kingdom we're looking for. A full kingdom that will only happen when he comes back. We live in the middle. We live between two worlds. The world of Satan that we're striving against and the world that is to come where there is no more striving. And all of it depends on the king himself. If Jesus did not die, you can't be in the kingdom. And if he's not coming back, you'll never be happy. But if he did die, and if he is coming back, then everything is going to be okay. That there is nothing that is happening now that will not be made right in the future. That there is no effort that you do on Christ's behalf that he will not reward. Christ sees everything that his subjects do. He rewards everything that is in accordance with his will. He is keeping us, preserving us, till the day he comes back to get us. And then he's going to remake the heavens and the earth. And the rule of Christ will be universal and will be a part of it. If we accept Christ as king. That is the hope of Christians. Bernard of Clairvaux, he wrote a thousand years ago. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills the breast. But sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek, to those who fall, how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. Jesus, our only joy be thou, as thou our prize will be. Jesus, be thou our glory now and through eternity. Christ is the king. You can accept him to rule in your heart now, and he'll come back and he'll rule the world. Or you can reject him. But look at the kind of king he is. Let's be the kind of people that actually follow our king. Let's pray.